It is a suburb on the outskirts of Chicago with ties to Al Capone manufacturing and in the 1950s was the site of three days of chaos sparked by an African-American family trying to legally move into an apartment building in the all-white city. This is the story of the Cicero race riots of 1951. I'm Tommy Henry and this is the Chicago History Podcast. Before we get started, this episode deals with racial violence, the destruction of personal property, and a few words to denote African Americans that were used in publications of the day that are no longer politically correct, but to be fair to the reporting of the stories are important for context. For this episode, I am joined by a special guest who is just as, if not more, passionate about Chicago history as anyone I know. On social media, he is known as the Urban Historian, and his 60-second Chicago history TikToks have been viewed hundreds of thousands of times. Dilla, welcome. Oh, man, thanks for having me. I'm uh, quite honored, happy to be here. Love Chicago history, so of course I love the Chicago history podcast. <laughs> oh, you're a sweet talker. Let me ask you, uh, ha- have you been a history fan since you were a kid? Is this something you got into uh, later? You, I, I think as I uh, remember back, it was something that I've always been very, very interested in, storytelling, uh, dissemination of history. But I get it from my father. He was a Chicago policeman for 30 years, and he was a rabid Chicago guy, I guess, from you know living the history and being out in the city. So, so most of the time, if you wanted something from him, it came at the expense of a Chicago question. And if you got the question wrong, the answer was no for that day. And so you you retained that information in case you reacted, it. And I guess it came from that. I, <laughs> I think that's amazing. I, I wish more families were, were kind of set up that way. That's very cool. Let's get into the story. A little background on Cicero, Illinois to start. In 1849, the Cook County Board created a new township from a 36 square mile tract bounded by what are today Western, North, and Harlem Avenues and Pershing Road. Eight years later, in 1857, electors organized a local government for the district, which they named the Town of Cicero. Soon, an influx of immigrants, the rise of railroads, and post-Civil War relocations to the area contributed to economic growth in the new township, which by 1867 numbered 3,000 residents. On July 21st, 1899, Ernest Hemingway, winner of both the Pulitzer and Nobel Prizes, was born within the town of Cicero in what is today known as the village of Oak Park. In 1901, the three remaining components of the town, today's Oak Park, Berwyn, and Cicero, voted to separate. The surviving town of Cicero retained less than six of the 36 square miles carved out in 1849. Immigrant families significantly increased the town's population, however, and housing, construction, and industry boomed in Cicero. One of those industries was the Western Electric Company, based in the Hawthorne section of Cicero, which by the mid-1900s employed 40,000 workers. If this sounds familiar, the Western Electric Company was discussed in episode 113 of this podcast about the Eastland disaster. 
During the 1920s, the Torrio Capone mob could be seen on Cicero streets in armored cars, keeping a close eye on the wide open gambling joints, honky tonks, and other places of ill repute they controlled. Chicago, 1940. The city had a population of slightly less than 3.4 million. That's right. There was about 800,000 more people in Chicago then than there is now. Of those, there was approximately 278,000 African-Americans. Most blacks in the city at the time lived on the South side, covering 77 of the city's 935 census tracts. Of those 935 census tracts, 305 census areas had zero African-Americans living within the boundaries. During the wartime boom between 1940 and 1950, 225,000 more African-Americans moved to Chicago, many from the South, many optimistic that they could get a good job in factories and steel mills and provide a comfortable living for their families. According to Nicholas Lamont's book, The Promised Land, The Great Black Migration and How It Changed America, at one point in the 1940s, 3,000 African-Americans were arriving every week in Chicago. With the 80% gain in the African-American population of Chicago, those 77 corresponding tracks bulged. Families were doubled, even tripled up in single apartments. Gradually, that community had to expand out. And by the 1950, there were 115 census tracts with African-American population of more than 50%. Those 305 all-white census tracts dwindled down to 128. And those 128 did not appear eager to allow their areas to become ethnically diverse. Harvey Evans Clark Jr. was born in Mississippi in 1923 and after finishing high school, went to Fisk University in Nashville to study political science. While there, he married a fellow student, Janetta. Clark left university to join the Air Force during World War II, serving until he was discharged in 1945. Returning to Fisk University, he played baseball, was a member of the university debate team, graduating in 1950. That summer, Clark, his wife Janetta, and their children, Michelle, eight, and Harvey III, six, decided they would make the move north to Chicago, where he had the promise of a job selling insurance. The Clarks had difficulty finding a proper place to live when they moved to Chicago. Harvey Clark only stayed at the insurance job for a little while before accepting a job driving a bus for the Chicago Transit Authority. But with where they were staying, he was roughly 25 miles from his job, making for long commutes. In June of that year, a friend of Harvey Clark put him in touch with someone with the Illinois Realty Company, who knew of an apartment vacancy at 6139 West 19th Street for $60 per month. What the 29-year-old Clark did not know is that that address was in Cicero, a suburb of 67,000 residents, all of them white. When Clark went to see the apartment with Dean Chandler, the representative from the realty firm, he found two policemen in front of the building. The police demanded Clark's name and address, to which... Clark complied. Clark asked Chandler, why the policeman? Chandler responded, just routine to block trouble. A Negro has bought the building. Based on court testimony and the Clarks, this is what transpired next. On June 8th, Harvey Clark went to the apartment to move in. He was joined by his wife, Charles Edwards, 
who worked for the realty firm who was managing the building and by Miss George Adams, wife of the African-American attorney who had bought the building. They were met by the same two policemen as before. One of the policemen reportedly asked Clark, where are you going, boy? When Harvey Clark explained he was moving into an apartment on the third floor, the policeman told him he needed a permit. When Clark said he didn't need a permit, the police responded, I'll call the chief of police. You colored people can't move in. As Harvey Clark and the three others discussed the situation in front of the building, curious neighbors began to take notice of the four African-Americans in their otherwise white city. More police started to arrive from all directions. Soon, 20 police had gathered. Clark and others decided they might be safer inside the apartment. But moments after entering, one of the police came in the room and told them to leave. A few minutes later, Cicero Police Chief Erwin Konofsky arrived. According to Clark, he shoved me into the street and booted me in the pants. He said, do you think I'm gonna jeopardize the lives of 19 white families, referring to the building's other tenants, for the likes of you? A 1951 Time Magazine article went on to report the quote, the real estate agent who rented the apartment said Chief Konofsky struck him several times and shouted, get out of Cicero and don't come back or you'll get a bullet through you. The four of them left quickly. Clark moved his family into a room at Edwards House and filed a $200,000 damage suit against the town of Cicero and Cicero officials. When the Clarks entered the courtroom of federal judge Joseph P. Barnes, they found it packed with women and children from Cicero. Outside, protesters paraded with banners that read, Keep Cicero White. Judge Barnes was not pleased, telling the Cicero policemen, quote, You are going to be as diligent in seeing that the Clarks move into that apartment without harm as you were in keeping them out on June 8th. If you fail, you are going to be in serious trouble with this court, end quote. Cook County Sheriff John Babb and Chief of Police Konovsky requested a two-hour notice so they could have enough protection on hand for the move-in. Clark thought the problems were behind them. On Tuesday, July 10th, 1951, Clark's attorney, George Lethen of the NAACP, notified Babb and Konovsky two hours before the move-in. Only the Clarks, their attorney, Lathan, Cook County Sheriff Babb and Cicero Chief of Police Konovsky knew of the plans for the move-in that day. The Clarks arrived to a crowd of 300 who began taunting and hurling insults. A man sped on Clark. A smiling policeman standing nearby, one of 50 on site, turned his head. A woman reached past the police to slap Clark. The police stood and laughed. When the moving van arrived, the Clarks were quick to get their furniture inside as quickly as possible to get the attention getting moving truck on his way. The mob was growing larger and seemed more hostile, so the Clarks family decided to leave the area until the storm blew over. During the incident, Harvey and Janetta Clark's eight-year-old daughter, Michelle, adds, Daddy, why don't they like us? They stayed in the one-room apartment on East 44th Street for the night. Wednesday, July 11th, 1951, was like the night before, but far worse. The crowd was bigger, uglier, more riled up. Police stood with arms folded as teenagers threw stones at the building. Women with babies in strollers brought stools to watch the event. 
Harvey Clark sent word that the family would withdraw their plans to live in the town, a message that was announced on a loudspeaker truck at the scene, but it did little to halt the rioters' actions. Around midnight, a group of teens made their way through the main door and up the stairs of the building to the third floor where the Clark's apartment was. With the crash, furniture was thrown out a third floor window, clothing and dresses rained down on the crowd below. One of the items destroyed was an $800 spinet piano worth about $8,000 in today's money. Harvey Clark reportedly had worked many hours of overtime so that his daughter would have a good piano on which to play while developing her budding musical talents. The vandals tore out the toilet, damaged the bathtub, pulled doors off the hinges and windows from the frame, pulled down plastic walls, destroyed light fixtures, smashed radiators. Then they moved to the other apartments in the buildings, the ones rented by white tenants who had long since fled and tore up their units as well. The crowd roared as two youths stepped to the front of the building holding the Clark's marriage certificate. After loudly announcing what it was, one set fire to it. Another group approached the pile of furniture lying broken on the lawn and set fire to that. As shocking as all of this had been up until now, for some reason this part of the story seems extra bizarre to me. Dump trucks arrived with stones for the mobs to hurl. In that night's chaos, Robert Koenig, a 25-year-old policeman on the scene, was severely injured when he was hit in the head with a brick. No one was arrested that night. By 2.30 a.m., the crowd began to die down. Cook County Sheriff John Babb, sensing the mob would return, called Governor Adlai Stevenson the morning of Thursday, July 12th. Stevenson called out five companies of National Guardsmen, the first time the National Guard had been called out since the 1919 race riots in Chicago. Early that evening, the National Guard troops, units from Elgin, Aurora, Waukegan, Woodstock, and Joliet, arrived at Cicero City Hall waiting for orders. By 7 p.m., the 3,000-strong mob was back, pressing against the police line already in place around the house. Women in dresses, teens in t-shirts, and fathers with children on their shoulders all stood in the crowd trying to get a better look. The crowd chanted, go, go, go. Back at City Hall, the National Guard continued to wait for orders. As the mob pushed closer, teens with slingshots fired steel balls through the remaining windows. Sheriff deputies allegedly asked nearby firemen to push back the rioters with their hoses but the firemen refused to do so without the go-ahead from their lieutenant, who was unavailable. Finally, at 9.45 p.m., the National Guard got their orders and piled into jeeps and trucks with bayonets and live ammunition in their gear at the ready. They were greeted by a shower of stones, bricks, and fireworks. With the Korean War in its second year, one of the rioters yelled to the guardsmen, you lousy finks, why in the hell aren't you in Korea? Two police cars were overturning the rioting that night. One set on fire. The fire was extinguished before it got out of control. The guardsmen used slow dispersal methods to move the crowd back gradually, about 100 yards per half hour, until they established a 300-yard perimeter. The Tribune ran a picture of the National Guard setting up a mounted machine gun that night. 
When a brick thrown by someone in the crowd hit a 23-year-old National Guardsman in the face and the other Guardsmen got fed up with the constant barrage of stones, they resorted to deploying tear gas and using their bayonets to push the crowd back from the line. That crowd of roughly 3,000 fled quickly, and in their haste, people were trampled. One 14-year-old boy suffered two broken arms in all the mayhem. By the time the crowd had dispersed around 2 a.m., 15 people, including three policemen, three soldiers, and nine civilians, were so severely injured they required treatment at McNeil Hospital in nearby Berwyn. Cicero officials were quick to claim that many of the rioters were not from their town. But in reviewing the list of those hurt in the mayhem, including the 14-year-old boy with two broken arms, the town of Cicero is mentioned plenty. The next day, Friday, July 13th, guardsmen strung barbed wire around the building. Anyone showing up looking to cause trouble or that could not prove they belong in the area were hauled off to the police station. Order was finally restored. With 23 persons injured and 119 arrests, the building will remain completely boarded up for more than a year. After the rioting died down, the Clark family stayed with various friends for three months until they settled in the place in the Rosenwald Apartments in the 4600 block of South Michigan Avenue. Contributions came in from around the world, including Hawaii, Jerusalem, Nicaragua. Much of the total, roughly 4,800 or more than 48,000 in today's money, went to the legal fund against Cicero. In September of 1951, a grand jury was convened in Cook County to consider the Clark case. According to Clark, one juror said to him, quote, you're from the South and you couldn't take advantage of your constitutional rights there. Why do you think you Negroes can hear, end quote? On September 18th, the jury returned six indictments, including one against Cicero Police Chief Konovsky with misconduct in office for, quote, trying to deprive Clark of his constitutional rights, end quote. Clark later recalled, I was a newcomer to Chicago, and being a Southerner, I thought I was in a free state, Abraham Lincoln's state. Clark later said the family received about 2,000 letters, with only 20 being hostile. All the hostile letters were unsigned, and a few of the friendly letters were unsigned as well. One of the friendly unsigned letters came from a woman who lived in Oak Park, a suburb just outside of Chicago, who feared receiving the scorn of her friends and neighbors if her letter became public. Harvey Clark was quoted as saying, what impressed me most of all was the great number of people who weren't afraid to stand up and be counted. In July of 1952, one year after the riots in Cicero, Harvey and Janetta Clark filed suit against the county government. With the suit, they sought to recover three-fourths of the property lost in the Cicero riots, estimated to be $4,500. At that time, Illinois law stated a person may recover from the county government 75% of property loss they suffer from action by a mob of more than 12 persons. According to news articles in the Chicago Tribune, Clark was working as a district manager for a Kentucky distillery. Thurgood Marshall, who at that time served as special counsel for the NAACP, and would go on to serve as Associate Justice of the Supreme Court, had this to say about punishing those who let the events in Cicero transpire. Quote, these convictions will go far to convince not only governmental officials in Illinois, but in other states that they will have to answer before the bar of justice for their failure 
to administer the law without discrimination. In August of 1952, a year after the entire building on 19th Street went vacant, permits were issued to rehab the apartments to make it usable again. In 1955, the Cook County Board of Commissioners approved a $1,000 damage settlement, slightly less than $10,000 in today's money to be paid to the Clarks. Cicero was again in the news in 1966 when a 17-year-old African-American named Jerome Huey went to Cicero for a job interview. On his way back to the bus, four white teens attacked him with a baseball bat. He died of his injuries days later. Martin Luther King Jr. planned to march through the streets of Cicero, but called off the protest after reaching an agreement with city officials weeks earlier to improve open housing efforts. Even without King, on September 4th, 1966, Robert Lucas, the Chicago chairman of the Congress of Racial Equality, otherwise known as CORE, led a group of approximately 250 activists with plans to march through Cicero. Upon arriving, they found 2,700 National Guard troops and 700 police officers struggling to hold back a mob of angry riot residents, yelling obscenities and hurling rocks, bricks, and bottles. The more militant group of marchers did not feel compared to follow Martin Luther King's pledge of nonviolence. Many of the protest marchers gathered up the items thrown at them by the mob and hurled them back at their white attackers. We hear a lot about hate crimes in today's everyday discussion. So here is a little on that. In 1968, Congress passed and President Lyndon B. Johnson signed into law the first federal hate crime statute. This made it a crime to use or even threaten to use force to willfully interfere with any person because of race, color, religion, or national origin. And because the person is participating in a federally protected activity, such as public education, employment, jury service, travel, or the enjoyment of public accommodations or helping another person to do so. In 1968, Congress also made it a crime to use or threaten to use force to interfere with housing rights because of the victim's race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. This was 17 years after the Clark family incident in Cicero. Harvey and Janetta Clark's daughter studied broadcast journalism at Roosevelt University and Columbia College in Chicago. In May of 1972, she began work as a reporter for WBBM-TV in Chicago before working as a CBS News correspondent and an occasional news anchor in Washington, D.C. She investigated the Watergate scandal, and according to the book, The Warmth of Other Sons, the epic story of America's Great Migration by Isabel Walker, Michelle Clark was the first Black female network television correspondent. Michelle Clark was on United Airlines 553 en route from Washington to Chicago to visit her parents on December 8, 1972, when the Boeing 737 crashed into a row of bungalows before coming to rest on top of a home at 3722 West 70th Place, less than three miles from Midway Airport, killing two women on the ground and 43 passengers and crew. While there were 18 survivors that day, Michelle Clark was one of those who perished. She was 29 years old. The Michelle Clark Academic Prep Magnet School in Chicago's Austin neighborhood is named in her honor. 
Harvey Evans Clark Jr. died in 1998 at the age of 75 at his mountainside home in Swannanoa, North Carolina. The apartment building at 6139 West 19th Street in Cicero still stands today. As of 2019, census.gov quick facts show Cicero has roughly 80,000 residents, a large percentage of whom are Hispanic. Three and a half percent are listed as African-American. Thanks for listening to today's episode about the Cicero race riots of 1951. Special thanks to this week's co-host, the urban historian Dilla. Dilla, where can people find you on social media? Man, this has been awesome. I really appreciate you having me. Uh, you guys can find me on Instagram and TikTok at six figure Dilla, six F-I-G-G-A underscore D-I-L-L-A, six figure Dilla. I'll also have that in the show's notes. Uh, check out his TikToks. He is able to cram more information into 60 seconds than most people can in a 22-minute podcast. <laughs> oh, I sincerely doubt that, but thank you. Thank you very much for the compliment, and thanks for having me. If you have any questions about anything covered today, anything to add, or have an idea for a future episode topic, please send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. We will have plenty of news clippings and photos posted on social media throughout the week. If you're on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, please give us a follow. The original art for the Chicago History Podcast used on the social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. Thanks, Johnny. He can be found at AngelEyesArtJKS on Instagram or via email at AngelEyesArtJKS at gmail.com. I will be back next week with another chapter in Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Check out Dilla on TikTok. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe. 